Hey guys, well, we're going to pick up Nehemiah, um, as we have been doing for the past few weeks, um, just to fill you in so far on where we're up to in the story. And for those of you that have not been with us, just a very, very brief background on, on what's going on. The, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament is set in 445 BC, and this is about 140 years or so since Jerusalem was really ransacked uh, by the Babylonians and pretty much in many ways raised to the ground. And um, the Jews were either killed or they were exiled. And uh, Nehemiah's uh, forefathers, some of those were, were exiled to, to Persia. And that's where Nehemiah, a Jew, and now finds himself as a cupbearer to the king. It's a position of privilege because he has access to the king, but also a, a position where it seems that he has to take his life in his hands every day, where we read that some, some say that the role of the cupbearer wasn't just to simply give the king his drink, but also to test it to see if it had been poisoned. So we've got a guy, Nehemiah, who's kind of living in privilege, but also living with risk. And, um, but he's a man who carries in his heart the city of Jerusalem, which uh, back in that dispensation was really the, the city of God, the place that represented God's presence and God's purposes and God's glory. And when some fellow Jews visit the city where he's based in, in Persia, he asks them, how is Jerusalem? They say it's a mess. It's broken down, you know, the, the people are distraught, uh, it, it, it's really not good at all. And we see in chapter 1 that Nehemiah's response is to weep and to fast and to pray. And through that process, God births something in his heart. And it's really this plan to rebuild the city walls, to, to go back to the city of his forefathers and to rebuild the city walls. And so um, chapter 2, he's before the king and the king says, why are you so sad? And he, say, he explains about Jerusalem and asks permission to go back, ask permission for resources, for letters from the king, to give him safe passage so that he can um, have timber from the king's forest in order to rebuild. And it's all granted because God's hand is on him. And then last week, Nehemiah chapter 3, we, we had this amazing list of an incredible array of people who are building up different parts of the wall. We've got perfumers, we've got goldsmiths, we've got all sorts of different households and families. And we looked at that and we started looking at that whole idea of this unlikely army that is really gathering and coming together. Now, the reason why we're getting excited in 21st century about Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem's walls in uh, 445 BC is because it, it, this story speaks about something much greater than what it just is. This story speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ building his church. It's a, a foretelling, if you like. It's a shadow that points to the substance of Jesus building his church. Uh, and his church is not a building made of bricks, but it's made of living stones, made of people, a community uh, for God's own dwelling, which are people built together in love and built together, um, built with their lives built on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're getting really excited about it because the, as, you, as you look at it through those lenses, the things that jump out are really quite incredible. And we're also drawing on prophetic things that God has spoken into our heart as a church in the last few years. And we're looking at how these promises um, really fit in so incredibly with the scripture. And so last week we were looking at Unlikely Army, uh, part one. And this is Unlikely Army, part two. And we're going to be looking at um, chapter four of Nehemiah. So if you've got your Bibles with you, then please do uh, turn to chapter four in the book of Nehemiah. And um, I'm going to do it slightly differently this week. I'm going to read a section, then preach a bit, read a section, preach a bit, rather than re- reading through the whole chapter. So we're going to start with the first six verses of uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? 
Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Don't cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. What I'm going to start with in this section is really just looking at these comments that these enemies of Nehemiah were making, and I'm going to just kind of give a response. I'm going to answer. So it's going to be a little bit like just listening to Sam Balat and Tobiah jeering and mocking us, if you like, and just giving a response to that. So the first thing that he said is this. What are these feeble Jews doing? Um, well, what, 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 what are we doing? Well, nothing fancy. We're not doing anything fancy. We are, uh, we're here to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's it. That is enough for us. He is our boast. Um, we've not got a, a long list of fancy things that we're about. We're here to follow him. We're here to be responsive to his spirit's leading. We're here to catch the heart of God for this city, our communities, our nation. That's what we're here for. That's what we're doing. And to some it may look feeble, um, but so be it. We don't mind that. We feel that we have discovered the pearl of great price. We feel that we've discovered the, the eternal treasure. We are here to follow Jesus. End of story. Then they go on and say, well, will they restore it for themselves? No, we won't restore it for ourselves. We'll restore it for him. It's his house. It's his plan. It's his purpose. It's his community. We are not in this for wealth power, fame, reputation, we disdain that kind of motivation. We're here for the glory of God. We believe that when the one who really made all things is honoured and glorified in the way that he should be, that that will be the best possible thing for every one of his creatures. He's the God of restoration, the God of life. So we won't restore it for ourselves, but by his grace and by the power of his spirit and alongside him as he's the chief builder, we believe that we'll restore something for him. Will they sacrifice? If by that they're meaning, will they be able through this work somehow to get some kind of fitting worship going? Absolutely. And here's why. The reason why what we're doing will be able to please God and will be pleasing in his sight is, is really fundamentally because we're building it on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says that really the only fitting worship for God, the only worship that is pleasing the only worshipful aroma that is pleasing in his nostrils, if you like, is the aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Old Testament sacrifice, lambs and bulls and goats, none of those things were pleasing in and of themselves. They were only pleasing in that they pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the altar at which we worship. His sacrifice is the sacrifice. We come into the presence of God and bring our offerings of worship and they are pleasing to God because we come through Christ. He is the, the torn veil, if you like. His body was broken and he acts as the, the torn veil into the presence of God. It's through him that we have confidence and full assurance in the presence of God. We don't come in confidently praying because we feel like, oh, we've done well this week or, or haven't we been well behaved. No, it's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that speaks on our behalf. It's the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us as a gift. If we do what we do as a church in the name of Jesus, and if we do what we do as a church in the power of the Holy Spirit, then yes, 
there will be fitting and pleasing worship through what we do. Because it's the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus Christ that is satisfies the holy wrath of God. And then they said, well, they, will they finish up in a day? No. And we don't intend to. We're here for generations. We're not just here for this generation. We're not just here to try and make a splash for a couple of years. We hope and long that as we put our roots down here and really, I guess, fall into the ground and die, if you like, but give ourselves as a church into these, this part of London, that there will be a blessing for generations to come. That, it, that, that there will be children and children's children that find new life, that find forgiveness, that find grace, that find all these beautiful things that are found in Jesus Christ that become real for them. So no, we're not here to simply establish something in a day. We trust that by God's grace he will bless what we do in mercy and love and safety and teaching and equipping and sending and all these incredible um, themes that are around the gospel. God will, God will make a part of us and it will be a long-term thing. So no, it's not going to go up in a day. We're cool with that. We're following him, his pace and his timing. And then one of them says, well, you know, w- w- will you revive stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Well, if stones be people and if heaps of rubbish be the destruction that surrounds so many people's lives and if burned stones be the most damaged people, then yes, we will revive them. We believe that as the dwelling place of God, those who come to know us, those who come in touch with us, not because of anything special in and of ourselves at all, but because we host the Holy Spirit and because he is indwelling us and because we're living, looking to live, looking by God's grace to live lives that are kind of biblical, merciful, gracious, full of truth and integrity, because we're looking by God's grace to do that. We believe that even those stones, if you like, that are the most burnt, you think, man, how could this ever become a living stone in the temple of God? That actually they will be revived, the new life will come, and that this is exactly what will happen. So we believe that. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, well, if a fox goes up on its wall, you know, it will break it down. Uh, is that true? If, is that true that what, we, what we're about is so weak that if a fox were to uh, jump up on it, it would break it down? Uh, you know what? I don't think so. I think that there's foundations of the church here incredibly strong. I do. I think in our time we've seen off a few potential wolves, so we shouldn't be too troubled by foxes. Now we have to be aware sometimes, you know, the, there's a scripture in the Bible that says it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyards, and that means that sometimes it's the little things that get in that can bring destruction. So we need to be watchful, we need to keep our eye out, we need to be alert and humble and not proud or presumptuous but I feel like we've got a good strong foundation and I will say this about any church really and it's that a church is really only as strong as the individual lives are built on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone and also a church is only as strong as the relationships within that church being built on the Lord Jesus Christ and on him alone and so I just want to call us and call us back to Christ and say Um, In him are all the uh, mysteries and secrets of wisdom and knowledge. He shows us how to live. Um, He is enough. He is sufficient. And as we look to do relationships his way and build our life entirely on him, um, there will be a strength that no fox or wolf or monster or dinosaur could ever destroy. The thing will simply stand 
because it's built on the rock of ages. And in verse 4, Nehemiah's response to all these questions and jeerings and mockings, he simply prays, hear our God, for we are despised. Everything so far that Nehemiah has accomplished has been undergirded in prayer. The whole thing has been birthed in prayer. He hears about Jerusalem and he prays. And then he needs resources. So before he asks the king, we're told, he prays. And now he's facing some opposition and so he prays. The whole thing is built on prayer. Why? Because the whole project is built on God. It's God's project. It's God quickened. It's God birthed. It's God empowered. We must be exactly the same. It's so important. It's it's hard because you feel like sometimes you say the same things week in and week out about prayer, but they've just got to be said because uh, prayer is so effective and so powerful that actually it's very often the thing that gets most uh, attacked even in our mind and thinking in our heart and is often the thing that is the hardest because it's so effective. I want to call us to be a church that prays. Part of that is our prayer meetings. It's an important part of it every so so the first um the first wednesday in um was it thursday whichever one it is the first of november is our ignite prayer meeting that that is something for the whole church that's where we gather to seek god together every tuesday morning between seven and eight at the upper rooms we gather to seek god together we're there to pray it's not full of gimmicks or novelties we're there to pray why because to cry out to god to call on his name invokes the power of the Most High. He listens to our prayers and he responds. And so suddenly it means that you move out of the realm of just possibilities into impossibilities. You move out of a realm of just kind of doing the best you can with the resources you've got into a whole new realm where the arm of omnipotence, the arm of all power is behind you and you're calling that to come and support you, to come and bless, to come and bring life, to come and own what you're doing, to come and do things that we could never do, to open doors that no man can shut, to shut doors that no man can open, to protect and deliver us from every harmful attack. I mean, this is massive and this is huge. And please, let us never develop that mentality where we're just relying on others in the church to pray. Oh, well, they're like that. Oh, they, well, they're just good at praying. Oh, well, they can, they can get up in the morning. I want to urge and plead with us as a church that we would never neglect prayer, that we would see to prayer in our twos and threes, that we wouldn't just talk, but we would save time to pray, to get a hold of God together, that we would find time in our individual lives to pray and to seek God. I know many of us have, you know, incredibly busy kind of jobs and very, very demanding and, you know, God understands. He's compassionate. He gets it. He knows. He's not expecting everyone in the church to be interceding for three hours every day. He knows that. But do not neglect the place of prayer. It's the one way to ensure that actually you stay in line, that you stay on song, you stay in the right place, on the right page with what God's doing, and that you don't just kind of wander off into strange ideas and thoughts that are outside of God's purposes and that won't lead to fruitfulness. So let's take Nehemiah's example here and keep praying, keep things before God. And then, I love this in, uh, in verse 6, it's a verse, so we built the wall. <laughs> so we built the wall, there it is. All this mocking and jeering and opposition, now we built the wall. All the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. It's quite straightforward, guys. If we're up for this, if we're believing God, if we're willing to roll our sleeves up and say, I'm in, I'm involved. We're not going to just sit on the sidelines, spectate, observe, and maybe criticise and maybe encourage. I'm in. I'm going to make my own mistakes. I'm going to learn. I'm going to go shoulder to shoulder. We're going to push together. If we have that approach, the wall goes up. People have a mind to work, the wall goes up. On we go. Verse 7. 
But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans and their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Man, this is a big moment in the story. It starts to get really ugly now. The jeering and the mocking hasn't worked. There's been a depth of faith and a depth of confidence in God and a clarity of this is what we're about that has really just kind of knocked those, those curveballs out of the park and so now it gets ugly. Now the threats and the intimidation begins and you can see that it gets into the psyche of the people. The things they begin to say, they start saying things like, we can't do it. There's too much rubble. There's not enough of us. Many reasons. But they're all rooted in fear. Fear's got into their spirit. Discouragement is, is got under their skin. And when, thi- when, when, when stuff like that gets under your skin, here's what, you're, here's what you find often happens, is that you begin to come up with 101 reasons why something can't be done. But that's not really what's going on. It's not really those reasons. Something's got in your spirit. And this is why we need to guard our hearts. The Bible says, above all else, watch over your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. If fear or discouragement or confusion get into your heart, then suddenly those springs of life stop flowing as they should. And, and, then, and then, because no, no, none of us really want to admit that's happened, we tend to find reasons. We tend to reason it away. Oh, well, yeah, it's just got, it was too much. It simply was impossible or whatever. But that's not really what's going on. What's going on is something's got into our heart. Something's got into our spirit. We've been knocked. And uh, this, is, this is what's going on here. We see, and then not only this, but there's not, so, so, so there's this kind of, their, their heads go down, and then there's these threats that come from the outside. You won't even be able to see us until we're on you. We're going to attack you, and you won't be able to see us until we're on you. And then we see the anxiety of the, their own people. There's Jews in the area that aren't working on the city, but they're in the area, and then they come in ten times. You've got to return to us. You've got to return. And again, there's sowing in this fear. There's sowing in this fear. And there can be, it can be these seasons in in, in, in the Christian life, where it's just like something gets in your spirit. It could be on an individual level, something at work has happened, and it's just got fear in your heart. You know, you're, you're, you're not what you were, you're a shadow of what you were, because something's got in your heart, something's got in your spirit. Um, or something happens on your estate where you live, and fear gets in your spirit, and you start thinking, I'm going to sit out my time here, and then I'm going to get out of this city, I need, just need to get out. It's, it's, free, it's freaked me out what I saw there. I saw someone get mugged or, I, you know, or someone tried to mug me and something gets in your heart and you think, man, I don't really want to be here, but I'll, I'll sit it out and, and you begin to retract in your heart. And this, or, or even as a church, you, know, you can just go through seasons where things just don't seem to be going in the, in the way that they were. It seems tougher, harder, just flat or whatever. And something gets in your heart and you can begin to you, suddenly, oh, it looks more attractive over there. 
And then all you need is an invitation from someone. Oh, you, you come, come, you know, come away, come away. And it can, and it can draw you and, you and you can even begin to say, well, maybe it's God. And I want to say this, when God calls you somewhere, it's faith. It's not fear. When God calls you somewhere, there's faith. There's a quickening. There's a sense of, hey, it's not, it's not just, you know, um, flip, thank goodness, someone's finally given me another option because I really wanted to get out of here. Um, there's the, that won't solve the issue. That won't solve it. And look what Nehemiah says. He's so forthright. He's so strong with it. He just straightens it out. He says, don't be afraid of them. You think, well, it's easier said than done. What's, what's the solution? Remember the Lord. It's great and awesome. Remember the Lord. You see, we've got to remember the Lord. I mean, you might think, well, that's obvious, but give us something more than that. No, remember the Lord. It's whenever the presence and the person of the Lord himself, whenever he gets sidelined or relegated, or his power becomes a footnote in your life rather than a headline in your life, that all kind of, things just begin to spin out. We need to remember the Lord. We need to remember that he created all things. And that he didn't just create all things and then he's left, he's left them to just run themselves. No, he upholds all things by the word of his power. We need to remember that he intervenes, that he answers prayer, that he protects, that he provides, that he's very interested in every detail of your life, that he knows every hair on your head, that not even one sparrow of his creation falls to the ground without his knowledge. And are you not worth much more than the sparrows? We've got to remember the Lord. He is this great and awesome God and also this caring and inter- intimately involved father. In our lives, we must remember the must remember the Lord who so loved us. He gave His one and only Son. We must remember, oh, a God that would do, a God that would give up His Son to death on a cross, a God that would pay our debts through the death of His Son, a God that would heal our wounds through the death of His Son. That's a God we need to remember. We need to meditate on His greatness, on His goodness, on His kindness, on His awesome might, on His glory, on His holiness, for our minds to be filled really with the fullness of all. That he is. Because once your mind is filled with him, then you can do the next thing, which is fight. Remember the Lord and then fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. King David said, with the Lord I can, I can scale a city wall. With the Lord I can run against a troop of soldiers. So there's something about once you're gaze is set properly again once you are centred on him and orbiting around him that these other things that seem so terrifying and so intimidating take their proper place and so remember the Lord and fight that's what, that's what Jesus says to us he calls us to abide in him to look on him and then out of that to fight when he be verse 15 onwards when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each laboured on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you are, 
where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we laboured at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by day and by night and may labour by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So there's this, there's this victory. They, Nehemiah calls them back out of fear and the... And, um, and God frustrates the plans of the enemies and they all return to the wall and they return to their work. But they have to return in such a way that is uh, with a new sobriety, a new alertness, a new awareness that this thing is not going to be constructed without opposition. For those of you who would like to be able to, I guess, learn in depth about Christian warfare and what that really looks like, then you can go onto our website and download sermons from the series we called No Retreat, No Surrender, where we unpacked for 10 weeks or so what Christian warfare means. But just to give it in a nutshell, we're not talking about opposing and hurting people. We're not talking about being physically violent. We're not talking about any of those things. Christian warfare involves uh, a whole different uh, approach, a whole different perspective where you recognise that at the end of the day, your battle's not against other people. Your battles against spiritual forces of wickedness that are at work in the spiritual realm, but that breaks into the reality of the earthly realm that we're a part of. And so things like knowing the truth and believing God and forgiving others and, um, and knowing the word and the promises of God and praying these, the, and, and sharing the faith. These, this is how we express our warfare. This is what we do. And so that's the picture here. Nehemiah's in this story. He's saying, well, we're going to go back to work but you can have your trowel in one hand and your sword in the other. And that's the idea. We go about our work of uh, co-laboring with Jesus. We, we do what we do. We, you know, we look to live lives that are godly and holy. We look to live lives with integrity. We look to walk in the light and just be living kind of transparently before God and others and not in hidden deeds of secret darkness and shame. We, we've turned our backs on all of that. We're looking to value people, value relationships, work hard at forgiveness, reconciliation, bearing with one another. We're doing all that kind of stuff. We're building, 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 building. But at the same time, we're aware there's a fight going on. So we're not, we're not naive. You know, if, someone, if something goes wrong in church, we don't suddenly just kind of flip out or disappear or run away or join another church. You know, this is a battle. And I've got to, in order to win here, I've got to, I've got to okay, I've got to get right with that person. We've got to work it through. I've got my trowel, but I've also got my sword. When the opposition comes, we're ready to fight and fight in a proper sense. And look at some of the keys in here are really, really important. Um, we see that uh, the leaders are in proximity. Nehemiah gathers the leaders around and says, come on, we're all, good. We're all in this together. It's just a, and so there's a sense in which we're all in this thing together. This is church life isn't to be something where, well, these people do this, but no one ever sees or knows the leaders. Are. I mean, we're, we're brothers and sisters all together, um, all got our shoulder to the wheel, all pushing together, all looking to really uh, join with one heart into what God is doing. That's a really, really important thing. And then there's this beautiful thing where Nehemiah says, I've got the man with a trumpet ready and, um, and we're going to rally to any point where we see the enemy coming. The enemy's coming over there. Okay, we're all going to rally together. And it's a beautiful picture, really, that even though all of us are building our bit of the wall, I mean, this gospel community, I'm, I'm building for, for asylum seekers and refugees and over here, well, I'm focusing on 
This is state in our gospel community and we're working. We've got the food bank here, feeding the hungry. And at times those different gospel communities or areas of serving and different things, they'll just they'll, they'll be looking a bit a bit fragile. Maybe some people leave and there's some gaps there. At that point, we've got to rally to them because we're not just doing our thing. It's part of something bigger. We're, we're part of the whole thing, but we're going to rally. We'll rally to fill that area there. Why? Because it's vulnerable. There's a vulnerability there. And it's been just great in, in, over this last season to see a real rallying to the food bank, a real rallying, the gospel community numbers beginning to grow and develop there and people volunteering on a Saturday. It's really important. Why? Because well, we don't want that to be vulnerable. It's massive. I mean, if you even thinking about what happened just this week in the office, I had a call from a young lady um, a few stops away on the overground, didn't even have the money to make it down uh, to us here, um, couldn't have got here on a Saturday, didn't know what to do. I literally had the money for the phone call in the phone box and that was it. And you think, well, wow, what an incredible opportunity to, for Sally head up there with some food and meet her there and give her a cuddle and give her loads of food. Three young children, you know, hungry. I mean, it's massive. We've got to, you know, whether or not you're in that gospel community, that's what, that's what we're all a part of. And so we've got to carry in our hearts these, this whole picture, this big picture together. We have to focus on what we're focusing on, but we carry the big picture in our heart. In the same way we concerned about other churches in the area. We want them to do well. It's not just about us. Every gospel preaching, Bible believing church we are we are shoulder to shoulder with. We're standing with them and we want to see we want to see them blessed. We want to see God's kingdom come. So we're we're looking to support wherever we can. It's a beautiful principle that we see here. And Nehemiah says when the trumpet blasts and we all go we all go we all rally to that point, God will fight for us. Because God will God will fight for the defenseless. God will fight for the fatherless. God will fight for those who can't fight for themselves. And so we rally there. We're not passive. We rally to different points. We help. We get involved. But the whole time we're recognising, God, you're fighting for us. The battle belongs to the Lord. And then we have these, this, this final couple of verses. I'll read them again because they're quite extraordinary, really. So we laboured at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. From the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. That that there may be a guard for us by night and may may labour by day. Guarding at night, labouring at day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me even took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. There are seasons of intensity. There are seasons in the Christian life individually where you've just got to, you've got to, Face the fact that it's, it's a bit intense and special measures. It's a bit like with the Olympics, you know, suddenly the fiasco with the security, the security company that couldn't efficient, efficiently do what they've been asked to do and you have to get the army in. And some of these guys, you know, they're just about to finish their tour in Afghanistan, going to go and see their family for the first time in a year. And then they've got to go to the Olympics and do that. You think, well, right, what's going on? Special measures. The seasons come where you've just got to, you've got to man up. You've got to... Okay, it's what it takes. And there are those seasons in church life. There just are. Well, you're like, okay, and I know for so many of you, you, you know, I'm preaching to the converted. You know this. You know, you fill so many gaps so often of the time. You get it. You know it. Sometimes you feel like, oh, I don't even have a chance to have a shower. It's coming from work and now I've got to be there. And that life shouldn't always be like that. And if it is, there's a problem and we've got to talk about it. But there are seasons where it's just like, okay, got to do this now. And I want to just call you to a toughness. I want to call you to a recognition, to a maturity, that there are seasons in life like that. That we are not, for a moment, going for patterns of life like that. Because I don't think that 
glorifies God or does us any good. But there are seasons where it gets a bit intense. Seasons where you've got to fill some gaps. Seasons where you've just got to fight through. And um, just to be able to face that and know that our Lord Jesus has been through all of that and more. That our Lord Jesus has been through seasons of immense pressure, 40 days of fasting, followed by serious temptation. Bang. He came through it. There was a time when Jesus just heard that his cousin, John the Baptist, had died and he went off to solitude. And when he arrived at his place for solitude, the crowds were waiting for him. Oh, and they told he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Another time where Jesus' family tried to restrain him. They said, he's going mad. He didn't even have time to eat. Um, but it was right. There was the night before the crucifixion where he's just facing such darkness and difficulty. There are those seasons. There are. It shouldn't mark all of life. If it does, something's wrong. Jesus was a frequenter of parties and meals and beautiful moments of rest and solitude. But there are these seasons and when they come, God will give us the grace we need. God will give us the grace we need to push through. And just as we wrap things up now, I want to just really, I guess, first of all, call those of you that are listening today that don't know for sure that you know the Lord Jesus. I want to call you to, um, to say there's opportunity today. It's a decision only you can make. No one can force your hand. But I think to give opportunity is really important. If you want to come to Christ, if you want to get to know this Jesus who paid your debt, this Jesus who bore your sin in his body on the tree so you could be forgiven, so you could be reconciled to God. If you want to know this Jesus, then there's opportunity for you today, for that. There's op- he's made the way for you. So as we break for bread and wine in just a moment, say to the person you came with, I want to, I want to come to Christ, I want to know this forgiveness, I want to know this new life. Come and speak to Simon or one of the other leaders if you don't know anyone else in the church and just say, pray with me, I want to find Jesus. Um, you can leave here a new creation, you can leave here knowing your sins are forgiven. And for those of you that do know the Lord and you're following the Lord, I want to just say, guys, we're about a great work. We're about a really great work. God's doing something wonderful with us, in us, through us. I'm so thrilled and excited with the beautiful life that, and maturity that he's bringing by his grace, by his spirit. It's just so good to be shoulder to shoulder with you and to be labouring with you under his extraordinary leadership. And I want to just speak to those of you that are in seasons that are tough and you're thinking... I don't know how much longer I can go on. Just hold the line. Just hold the line. Don't do anything crazy. Don't flip out. Hold the line. Draw some brothers and sisters close by. And there's no notice with Nehemiah. He he got families. He got clans to plug the gaps. Get your brothers and sisters around you. Get people around you that can stand with you. Pray with you. You'll come through it and you'll testify. God's brought me out to a spacious place. He always does that. He is faithful. Um, So let's keep standing together. Let's keep fighting together. And uh, God bless you. Uh, as you gather together now to break bread to remember his body broken for us and to share the wine to remember his blood shed for us and to continue to honour him with your praises and your thanksgiving and I'm really look forward to seeing all you guys next week